0: Welcome back to Brojo Online, I'm Dan Munro. Today I'm going to be sharing some stories from clients that I've worked with over the seven or so years that I've been a coach. I couldn't possibly talk about everyone, but today I'm going to share some stories from some of the clients who I think have had experiences that are really relatable and that we can all learn from. So I'm going to tell you about what they did and some of the lessons that we can learn from them. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. Now I have to keep them anonymous uh, because some of them will have some personal details that uh, I don't want to share. But basically I'll give you their backstory, what it is that we worked on together, what changes they made. And the lessons that we can take away from these changes. I've worked with over 100 paying clients one-to-one since I started in this business. I've done a lot more than that in groups, of course. But 100 one-to-one clients or more. And these are kind of my hand-picked dozen or so that I really wanted to share. Let's start with someone we'll just call V. Uh, He came to me... After a year of really struggling with addictions, to some extent, but mostly the addictions were just a symptom of a kind of existential crisis he was going through in his early 30s. Now, he had been working at a big corporate company and doing quite well, I guess by everybody else's standards. You now his parents were proud of him for what he was doing, and his friends were jealous of his success and so on. But he was miserable. He didn't like his job, he didn't like being in the rut that he was in and following that path to the end. He's quite a creative person and his job required absolutely zero creativity, but he felt stuck there because he was just afraid to even explore the idea of changing his career, especially to change it to something in the creative artistic sphere which everyone around him looked down on. You know, the arts were something you do for a hobby. They're not something you do for a job. And so it never even really occurred to him to make a switch that dramatic. So when he originally came to me, it wasn't actually about this issue. He was struggling with integrity and honesty. He had heard my podcast for higher existence. And so that's what we started with. We were just working on honesty and him doing more of what was right for him. And eventually it became clear that he had a big passion for cooking. This didn't come out until quite late in our sessions, and we came to the conclusion that it's because he was afraid that if it did come up, it might actually go somewhere. Now, he is a classic example of being stuck between fear of failure and fear of success at the same time. I've often found with many of the clients I work with that they suffer from both equally. They often only recognize one of them, usually the fear of failure. But it's really the fear of success that holds us back more than anything else. Because success means massive change. That's all success really is. I mean, you know, we all go to our graves empty-handed. You don't get to keep any of your rewards. So success isn't about getting rewarded, really. It's about changing your life. And while the change is an improved quality to what you're used to, the problems are better problems to have, and the luxuries are more luxurious and comfortable, it means changing everything. And to change a career, especially one from corporate to artistic, means not only just changing the kind of hours you work or the kind of people you're with, but your whole mindset. You go from drudgery to make an income, to passionately doing something enthusiastically because you want to. It sounds good, but it's actually quite scary. And he was afraid, as we all are, the same as I was when I first started considering coaching as a career. You know, I was scared, not because that I might, you know, I might fail at it. That was scary, but I was scared because I might be able to actually do it. And that presented me with a kind of pressure to do it. Well, I was surrounded by people who were discouraging. Not everybody, but a lot of people thought it was dumb to start your own business in general. And certainly dumb to start a business around coaching. And uh, my client was uh, under that same pressure. Fast forward, he's now quit that corporate job. Well, he kind of got pushed out, in a sense, by COVID. But it was that or he quit. It was at that stage. And now he's working in a really nice kitchen. Which he found by just building connections, reaching out to people and offering his services for free just to try it out. And what started as a one month trial has just quietly moved on to a full time job. And he's loving it. Yeah, he gets paid less. And the hours go late. And he has to actually work hard instead of just... Cruising and waiting for the day to end, but he loves it. So, what are we to learn from this? First and foremost, when you're trapped in a career that sucks, you need to be thinking about an exit strategy. It needs to have an urgency to it. See, what gets you stuck in a shit job, mostly, is complacency. The delay tactic that fear does that says, I'll deal with it later. I'll deal with it next month, next year, after my next promotion, or when you know my baby's growing up a bit more. It just keeps delaying. There's always a good reason to delay, or what appears to be a good reason. But when you look at it from a meta level, is there ever a good reason to delay improving your life? The answer is no. So any reason your fear gives for the delay has got to be bullshit, because there is no good reason to delay an improvement in life. You might die in a couple of months. Or sooner? Wouldn't you rather go out on a high than a low? What's the point of suffering if you don't have to? What's the point of suffering if you can change it? What benefit is there in doing a job you cannot stand and you would never do for free when you can actually do one that you would enjoy and that would make you a better person for everyone around you? It's not a good argument to stay in a shit job. A lot of people have arguments. I need the money got to support my kids, you know, I've got a good boss, blah, 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 blah. But it's all just bullshit. It's all bullshit. The real excuse is I'm afraid of change. That's all that's really keeping you there. Which is ironic because you've been changing all your life. Ever since the day you were born, you've been going through massive changes and you've survived them all. So why you'd be scared of another one doesn't even make sense, rationally. But emotionally, it makes sense because of the concept of familiarity. Fear wants things to stay familiar. And the longer they stay familiar, the more embedded you become in that. The more conditioned you become to keep it, the harder it is to break. So what's the secret? What do we learn from V's breakthrough? Well, one of the things that he did was he inched his way into it. See, what your fear will do will demand a massive change. They'll say, you've got to totally change your career to do this thing. That's not true. You don't have to do that. But you do need to explore it. And you can balance both at the same time while you explore. So he just started cooking more at home, playing with recipes, cooking for others. He catered a party at some point. And then he reached out to people he knew in the food industry and asked if he could come and observe and talk to them and play in their kitchen and He just kind of inched his way over until one day he's given this opportunity to work there and it happened to coincide when he got made redundant. And so he took the opportunity. Now the opportunity didn't just fall on his lap. He was out looking for opportunities. Or I should say he was exploring the concept of cooking. Practically, he was out there doing it. And the thing found him and that's how it happens. So if you're thinking about Changing from a job you hate, which is most of you listening to me right now are technically in a job you hate. You might say you like it, but you know you hate it if you would quit for a million dollars. Okay? Because if your job's not worth more than a million dollars to you, then it's not good. Simple as that. So if you're in a job where you would quit if there was a check for a million dollars, then you need to be looking for a better job or starting your own business. But rather than looking for a career change, a vocation, Start amplifying your exploration into what you can originally just call a hobby. Something you're passionate about. Something like, it would be a dream come true if someone paid you to do it. And it doesn't need to seem to be financially viable to begin with. There's a guy who has a business and all he does is stare at people. I can't remember his name. But uh, you can look it up, like the guy who stares a lot or something like that. You'll find it on Google. People pay him thousands of dollars to just make eye contact with him. So don't tell me that your hobby can't be made into a job. Because one guy's made looking into a job. Okay? So (laughs) if looking into someone's eyes can be wildly successful financially, then whatever you're into can be as well. You can get paid to play video games. So... Start off by just exploring the hobby without any pressure to make it into anything, but explore it actively. Go out and meet people in the field. Go volunteer. Find free time to do internships. You know, play in it. And it will seem less intimidating as you inch towards it. And then one day the balance will come where you're like, you know what, I'm ready to quit because I've found a way to make money doing this now. And until that happens, you don't have to pressure it to happen, but you need to be exploring. Most people are in a shit job. And then they go home, they eat their dinner, and they watch TV or play with the kids. And on the weekend, they get drunk with their friends and play a bit of sport. But they're doing no exploration. And they're going to stay in that shit job till the day they fucking retire. And then they're going to think, holy shit, I wasted my whole life. That totally sucks because I only get one. Don't be that person. All right, next one. This woman, we'll call her A. She first came to me actually for personal coaching. Poor thing was stuck in a relationship with a classic chronic nice guy and was at the end of her tether and unfortunately it was too late for them plus he wasn't quite doing the work that needed to be done to rescue which was probably a irreparable damage to the relationship. What was interesting about working with her, however, was she was so fascinated by the work that we did together and found it so helpful. That she wanted to become a coach herself. And she was pretty successful in the corporate world. Another one of those classic stories. In a shitty situation. Being bullied by her boss. And just hating her job. And disliking her entire lifestyle really. And yet she had this great urge to help people. And she thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed being coached. And so then I trained her to become a coach herself. And... What's really fascinating is the work that we did together to begin with was assertiveness work. That was a huge problem she had. It wasn't that she was totally unassertive, but she really struggled to set and maintain boundaries in a healthy way. She struggled with her partner, at work, with her family. And this is really common. I just see this all the time. that People just don't know how to stand up for themselves properly and ask for what they want directly. And... You know, have a zero tolerance policy for disrespect and mistreatment. And it just leads to misery. People just walk all over you or you're having explosive conflicts all the time or both. And she was certainly in that category. We did a lot of work on on helping her become assertive. And yeah, so the, the funny thing is now, that's her specialty. Within a couple of years of completing the personal coaching with me, she became a quite successful uh, corporate coach, essentially, for assertiveness training. What was amazing is coming from all her corporate connections, it was so easy to leverage that into an audience base for her coaching. She had all the contacts, she had the reputation, and it was just a few well-placed phone calls and bold moves, and now she's really like drowning in opportunities. Uh, She's actually got too much business to handle. And nothing, nothing makes me happier and more jealous at the same time than to have one of my coach training clients essentially do better than me quicker than I did. You know, I'm glad for it, but I'm also envious, but yeah, that's exactly what she did. She's crushing it now and really making a big impact on the world. You know, the, you got to see the testimonials from her clients, just the, the changes they're able to go through, you know. You give someone a gift when you help them stand up for themselves. It, it changes everything. It gives them a whole new lease on life. It gives them opportunities, options, and most importantly, self-respect. Somebody who can't stand up for themselves properly in a healthy way has a very limited life. They're at the mercy of others or at the mercy of their own emotions. Whereas somebody is assertive, not aggressive, but assertive, You know, the world gets out of their way. It's amazing. I went through that change myself. And to see her go through it and now teach others how to do it. It's incredible how quickly. And that's one of the main lessons here. She went from learning it to teaching it in two years because of her absolute dedication to practical application. She went out and did it. One of the reasons she's one of my favorite clients of all time is because of her willingness To put what we talked about to the test. To actually go and do it. These very courageous, scary conversations. And to then be open-minded about what really happened afterwards. We would unpack her confrontations and find the areas where, you know, maybe she took things personally or she made judgments about the other person. Or whatever else it is that she did that made confrontation not go so well. And... Piece by piece, even though she was skeptical and very careful about changing who she was. Eventually, she became a sort of weapon who now can pass that gift on to others very quickly. So what took her, say, two years to learn, she can now teach others in a matter of weeks or months. And that's the beauty of coaching. You You take your own experience and then you refine it down for someone else so it takes them far less time. You gotta understand is if you want to help others, you really gotta sort out your own house. You know, you gotta get your own house in order first. And the more courageously and powerfully you do that, the better service you'll be to others. You can become a master from beginner by first mastering yourself. If you're ever looking to be support for other people, you know, I'm speaking particularly to people pleasers here. First step is stop trying to help others and get your own shit sorted. Become a master of yourself before you even think about interfering with other people's lives. See, people pleasers, they spend a lot of time trying to help others without realizing they are a weak source of help. If you can't even solve your own problems, what the fuck are you doing trying to solve somebody else's? You could be fucking them up even worse. Thinking you're helpful when you can't even follow your own advice. If you can't even follow your own advice, maybe it's not good advice. Maybe it's not followable. And A really embraced this concept. She really became that healthy version of self-centered for the right amount of time to get her house in order. And then when she reached out to others, she became an absolute powerhouse, a resource for them. Next, call him Jay. Now this guy went through one of the most fascinating experiences I've seen a client go through like live while they're working with me. A lot of people come to me after the crisis. They come to me after their marriage has broken down or they've burnt out of work or they've just lost sight of who they are or whatever it is. And this guy came to me, he wanted to work on nice guy issues and so on. And we were working on a lot of that stuff. And he was making progress. But then something happened to him. He got publicly shamed. I won't go into details because I don't want to reveal who this person is. But something he put on the internet went viral in some quite prolific media channels. And it was misinterpreted to make him look really bad. And I know the guy, like, the way he was interpreted as a bad person is so inaccurate. But it was just chum in the water the sharks just went crazy and this thing just doubled down and then tripled down and he got publicly shamed this nice shy guy who was just trying to work on himself his whole family just got dumped in the ship and I was uh I was kind of blown away because I'd never worked with someone who had been through that before you know I was always wondering myself what would happen if that happened to me I'm almost been trying to provoke something like that, you know, being provocative with my content or whatever, but nothing's ever gone viral for me, positively or negatively. Um, And this guy just blew up, he just, overnight famous. Now, like all internet shames, it lasted only a matter of days or weeks before the next big hit came along and everyone forgot about it, but he was really hurt by it psychologically. And, you know, that's quite understandable. The whole world turns on you. It's kind of a nice guy's biggest fear, have everyone dislike you. But he came back from that, you know, and, him and his whole family. They were able to slowly but surely recover from that and even venture back out into socializing. There was a moment where he went across to introduce himself uh, to some neighbors. I can't remember the story exactly, but. He started revealing to people what had happened, people who didn't know about it. And that was a big move for him because it's not like he wanted more people to know about this thing. But in order to overcome his shame, he had to talk about it. To to overcome your shame, you have to normalize the thing. In very simplistic terms, the best way to overcome shame of something is to talk about it until it's boring to talk about. That means you're no longer ashamed. And this was a big deal for him to find the courage to do this, but he did. He really did. So that genuinely impressed the shit out of me, because it was one of those rare situations a client goes through where I'm not sure how well I'd handle it myself. I mean, to be fair, I generally work with people whose confidence levels are a lot lower than mine, and that's why I work with them. I want them to get what I've got. I want them to figure out how what i figured out and get them there quicker than it took me. So it's rare for a client to have an issue that I think of as actually challenging to me personally, like, it's very rare for a client to have something that I don't think I could deal with well, but it's a big deal to them, at least in the beginning. It takes a few months before we're more like peers, and I'm like, yeah, that is hard, you know, we're equals now. But this guy, I was like, wow, publicly shamed? Yeah, I would at least have a few sleepless nights, at the very least. So him getting back out there was huge, and I think the lesson here is is the one around shame. There's two lessons, really. first one I've already mentioned, which is to get over your shame, is to go and share the thing you don't want people to know about. But the other one was, it was actually his shame in the first place that got him into trouble. See, the reason I kind of want to be publicly shamed is because I know that my response to it will be very aggressive and unapologetic. And that's the mistake most people make, is when somebody calls them out and ridicules them, they back down, apologize, or get defensive, which only kind of adds fuel to the fire, because it says, I'm ashamed of this. And bullies and the other trolls and losers on the internet smell that and kind of aggravated by it. But the lesson here is if somebody calls you out, you've got to own who you are. Don't defend it. Don't justify it, but don't you back down either. Say, so, yeah, that's me, and what? Even if you're wrong, you say, yeah, I was wrong. People get things wrong sometimes. Let's move on. I'm not going to bitch about it. Why are you bitching about it? you can going to tell me you don't do things wrong? Get out of here. You know That kind of attitude is the only response to someone trying to start a fire. Because any other response is fuel on the fire. You can totally ignore the thing, but that doesn't do it. And you can see this in, you know, things like at the tail end of the Me Too movement, there were a lot of um, male kind of high-profile guys being brought down for things that weren't really sexual assault. You know, the initial Me Too movement brought out a lot of the monsters, but by the tail end, people were getting in trouble just for having like a date that didn't go well. And sometimes I think there was outright dishonesty on the part of the accusers. But the problem was they apologized. They apologized for doing nothing wrong. As soon as you apologize, you're saying, yeah, I'm a bad person. I did something wrong and I'm afraid of it. I'm ashamed of it. And once you do that, the media pitbull gets its teeth locked in and you're done. And it shakes you until you're dead. This cancel culture stuff. Cancel culture, I guess. Yeah, that's what I'm really talking about. If someone tries to cancel you out, whether you're high profile or not, even if it's just in the office, you got to own it. you got know, to say, yep, that's who I fucking am. And that's it. You just own it. No apologies, no stepping down, no handing in your resignation. You know, just say, fuck you. That's who I am. Here's a box of tissues if you want to cry about it. It's the only way to survive, in my opinion, but I'm yet to be put to the test. All right, next one. Another J, female this time. Successful, confident person. You know, I have a mixture of clients. Some come to me with quite severe confidence issues. And some come to me and they're actually doing pretty goddamn well, but there's something missing. They want to tweak something. There's something they can't quite figure out on their own, perhaps, or something that's just taking too long to deal with. This girl came to me she was actually a referral um, working with her husband as well. She has the life and she has a strong personality, and because of that she doesn't really get much critical feedback. you know she's not scary or anything, but a lot of people are going to think she's doing well. This, you know I should learn from her rather than hey, maybe she needs some support. And a lot of people are like this. They, uh, they appear so strong to others that nobody thinks to offer them a helping hand when actually they're struggling. And she wasn't really struggling. She just wasn't quite there. And what we realized is that she's successful in all the practical measures of that word. But she hadn't really got in touch with her core values yet. She hadn't even really heard the concept core values before what it means to be yourself, to live with integrity. And so we started unpacking what those were and we started finding the areas where the way she behaves is actually in breach of those values. And eventually we got to this point, this exercise that we co-created called the ideal week, which is exactly what it sounds like. At the start of the week, you imagine, what would the ideal week look like for me? Now this is not based on external outcomes, it's not based on results, it's not based on approval or any of these superficial needs, but based on you living by your values powerfully. And this little exercise was a huge breakthrough for her, it seemed to do the trick really well. And since when she applies it, She gets a sense of power over a week. She knows the right thing to do and when to do it. Most importantly, how to adjust to the external world interfering with the plan. See, a lot of people make plans, but then they fall apart as soon as something goes wrong. When you're planning to live by your values, responding to things going wrong in a healthy way is part of the plan. You're actually primed for it. And I think this is the biggest lesson we can take away from her. You know, she is just so... So in control of who she is now. And so sure of the right thing to do at any given moment. Because she does this priming. She prepares herself to live strongly by her values. And she also prepares for someone to get in the way of that. You know, she's got young children. They're unpredictable as fuck, as all young children are. Uh, She lives in a community where, you know, friends or associates might spot her at any time and want to chat, you know. And it kind of upsets the plan. But she's got contingencies planned for all of these now. You know, If the kids sleep well, then she'll do A. And if they don't sleep well, then she'll do B. If she's walking along and no one interferes, then it's plan A. And if someone interferes, she'll confront them with a B. And if that doesn't work, she'll switch to C. And this adaptability just gives her a sense of power. And I think this is available to everyone. So step one is you figure out your core values. Step two is you figure out how to live by them. Step three is you prime yourself to live by them. And step four is you make the additional preparation to adjust when life tries to stop you from living by them. And I think that is a gangbusters fucking recipe for a good life. Next, talk about a guy that we'll call M. Classic Nice Guy. And classic nice guy history with women. Being cheated on. He's always chasing women who are wrong for him. He is nervous when he's with them sexually and can't perform. And has, through this experience, developed an image of woman kind of being, you know, treating him badly, consistently. He's been a people pleaser, or a nice guy, since for as long as he can remember, since childhood always putting on the sort of cool, unaffected act. And underneath that, just swimming in anxiety, constantly strategizing and planning what to do. And then he finally, you know, we are working together for a while, working on being honest, particularly on being honest, which is the, really the medicine for nice guy syndrome. And through this, he started getting more and more intimate with a girl who was actually healthy for him, which is actually one of the more difficult parts of nice guy recovery is you start forming intimate connections with genuine healthy people which is actually terrifying nice guys might seem to have a string of tumultuous relationships with unhealthy or even psychotic women but they actually prefer this though they won't admit to it it's it's their comfort zone you know they prefer to go with women who need fixing so that they can be the solid one that is needed when they meet a independent, resourceful, confident, honest woman, it's actually quite intimidating, especially when they start opening up to her and letting her in so that she could actually do damage if she wanted to, the guy starts getting really nervous. Long story short, my client was really struggling with this and ended up in a situation where the temptation to cheat on her was kind of thrown in his face. Again, I won't reveal the details. But, you know, guys often joke about, like, would you be able to, would you still be loyal if you came home and there's a supermodel lying on your bed naked saying, please fuck me. You know, it's a kind of litmus test, the mental experiment that guys do to figure out, am I really a cheater? And this guy was thrown in a situation that was even more urgent and unexpected. He, he had split second to make the decision and all these pressures from his past urging him towards actually cheating, being the man, being impressive to his mates. Being approved of by women, it all kind of came to a head, plus all his fears around intimacy, his fears of being hurt by women, his anger, massive suppressed anger towards women for the treatment he had received over his years. It all came to this moment where he was thrown in an urgent temptation to cheat, and he wavered and collapsed and ended up cheating. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story, and this is where he really impressed me. It took him a while to admit that it had happened to me. Because he'd even lied to himself about it. But eventually he told me about it. And he told her. And together we worked on the slow recovery of the relationship. And this was done with one thing only. Pure honesty. You know, a lot of people try to recover their relationships after this with something else. They try to be nice, or they try to repair it, or they blame the partner, or whatever, but... This guy just went all in with honesty, willing to lose her and revealed it all and answered every question she had and explained every feeling he had and took her through everything so that she had the full information to deal with. That's what I encouraged him to do. I was like, that's your only shot. If you guys are right for each other, the only way you'll survive this is complete full disclosure all the time from here on out. No more secrets. And to his credit, he did it, which is fucking scary. Most people can't. There are people who are married for 50 years who aren't as honest as him. But he did it. We had to do a lot of work on what it would look like to do that and why that was the right move. But he did it. And at the time of this recording, they're going all right. (laughs) It's getting there. I don't know what the future is for them. But the lesson here is redemption. See, it's never too late to be honest. And for a lot of people who have either done significant things that they're hiding or are just generally dishonest about who they really are all the time, you have to go through this very uncomfortable slate cleaning where you reveal and redeem yourself. So one of the things I do, like, I'd say I'm about 90% honest plus, but I'm not always. Still to this day, there's little things that I accidentally hide. Just the other day, I was on a call with someone, and they started pitching to me, and I wasn't expecting that. I thought this was just a friendly call. I felt that kind of like disappointed feeling when I realized, as I was speaking, that this was part of a sales thing. It's just that kind of ah, oh, fuck's sake! I thought this was legit, but I didn't say that in the moment. I didn't want to interrupt him. I was kind of confused. I let it go. And in the end, I sort of came to the decision, look, I'll just let the call play out, and I'll deal with it after. But afterwards, I was like, ah, fuck, I wasn't honest. You know, and this was just the other day. So I did the next best thing, which was I emailed him afterwards and told him, you know, I wasn't expecting a sales pitch. That kind of threw me. I'm not interested. It wasn't a great redemption, but at least now any dishonesty has been revealed. And we're back on track. I'll never probably speak to the guy again. But at least I'm on track with myself. And this is what my client him did. He wasn't able to undo the past. He wasn't able to change what happened or why it happened. But he could reveal it all. So at the very least he's not living a lie. And thankfully that usually is the best solution to any relationship problems as well. A lot of people are scared of doing it because it will cause the end of the relationship, but it's secrecy that causes the end of relationships. It just takes longer, and it's more brutal and definite when it happens. But honesty will only ever end a bad relationship. And I think it's testament to how good they are for each other that honesty about this particular issue seems to have brought them closer together. All right, next. One of the earliest clients i worked with, actually, I believe this one was one of my first ever paying clients. I did a bit of free coaching. And then I started charging for it about a year after I started. She was one of my first. Um, She was from within my circle. I already knew her. And she had been sort of struggling with an ongoing, unsatisfying dating process, which is pretty common. People, you know, who are single in their late 20s onwards, They can get into these ruts where they're doing a lot of dating, but it all sucks, you know, it never really goes anywhere good, the people are flaky and whatever, you know, you just end up in these sort of, just this kind of cycle of just poor fits and it just gets worse and worse and you start to get this kind of hopelessness build up, like, fuck, I'm not seeing any light at the end of this tunnel. You know, people are like thrashing the dating apps and so on, you know, they initially see the matches and so on as successes and then after a while they start to think man this is just superficial noise none of this is any good and they start to doubt themselves but we were working together and even though this was quite early on in my coaching identified quite quickly the people pleasing that she was uh, suffering from when she would date somebody she had put so much effort into making them like her and I can't remember, It's so long ago, I can't remember exactly how the coaching went. But my challenge was, like, what if you didn't do that at all? What if you put zero attempt into making someone like you? And just sort of let them choose from the raw material. You just show them exactly what you are and you just let them choose based on that. You don't add anything to it. <laughs> Amazingly, she took that really quite literally and didn't even put on makeup. You know, she was the first girl I ever worked with to try this. Well, she didn't even try to make herself look better for the guy. I remember her first date like this. It didn't go anywhere in the long term, but she was just so at ease. And the person that came for the date was put at ease by her, being at ease. It was just, it went real instantly. Now, they weren't a great fit for each other, but she just saw the light at the end of the tunnel finally. She was like, whoa, I even had a good connection with someone who's not a good fit for me. All I did was wear my comfortable clothes, not wear makeup, and not give a fuck if the guy likes me or not. Just let him go. Like, you know, this is who I am. Make up your mind. Love it or fucking leave it. It was during this phase where she was trialing this that she helped out a friend. Yeah, I won't give the details as they how they came into touch because that's probably revealing. But he needed support at the time, and so she's like, "Yeah, you can stay with me." and Again, she was just being herself at this point. And he was being himself, and they both had their baggage and their issues, and they were just opening up front about it, and they started to have these long conversations while he was crashing at her pad. And this just escalated and escalated. Now, fast forward about six years. They have two children together, I think. They run a business together, and they are happy as fuck together. You know? And they haven't, like, changed into different people, you know? It's funny, they're actually quite, like, sort of not stuck in their ways isn't the right word, but they're just, they just don't give a fuck. Like, they're not trying to get abs or be Instagram famous or any of the stuff that people do. They're just, like, living these this nice, normal life together. And they fucking love it, and they love each other, and they love who they've become, personally. And that just came from just giving up on trying to impress people. Not giving up on socializing, but just giving up on trying to impress them. You know, there's this old kind of cliched advice that goes out there like, if you stop looking for someone, then they'll come to you. That's actually bullshit. But it's close to the truth. The truth is you stop trying to make people like you. You stop trying to impress people. You stop trying to get people. And you just start being yourself. Then you have a very high chance of connecting deeply with someone. That's the truth about it. But you have to give up on connecting with people. In a sense, you have to give up on it working out well. You don't give up on the actual going out and practically engaging with people. You keep doing that. But you just let go of that pressure and that effort and that energy into trying to be impressive. Stop trying to look good. Stop trying to make people like you. Stop trying to be so funny. Stop trying to be interesting. Stop trying to be cool. Stop trying to be fucking lovable. Just be whatever you are. Imagine that everyone you meet is like your best friend that you've known for 20 years. And treat them accordingly. You know, maybe some days you will be positive and optimistic. But some days you'll be tired and antisocial. Either way, you're just going to show whatever you are. You're not going to try and be anything that you're not. That is how you find your ideal partner. Alright. About halfway through now. I've got a few more to talk about. Next one, we'll call him O. He's an artist. uh, A singer, specifically. And he's a classic kind of creative type. So there's the people like the first guy I mentioned who are creative types, but they didn't do anything with it because they're too scared. Then there's another kind of moderate category where they went and created a career based on their artistic skills and talents and passions, but they still played it safe. And they did it the safest way possible, and they're not fully unleashed. They're not truly expressing themselves. You know, I've seen this in a number of musicians where they make music, but they're making it kind of like for other people, what they think other people will want to hear, what's popular, what gets a lot of likes, or, you know, what's commissioned. I've seen this with artists as well, you know, painters and drawers. Whereas at least, I mean, you've got to give them props. And I gave this guy massive props. At least he's made a career out of his true area of expertise and passion. That's better than most. Especially given that we're all grown up, you know, we're all conditioned as we grow up to think that the arts are low priority and that they should just be a hobby and that no one makes money doing artistic stuff, which is just so fucking crazy. Because some of the most well-paid people in the world are entertainers and artists. It's just so stupid. We're all like, you can't make money being a musician. Now, excuse me while I turn on the radio and listen to heaps of fucking famous and rich musicians. It's so stupid. But that's just the schooling system. The schooling system tells us, don't be creative. Just go be something you know practical and useful that people pay money for. Without realizing, actually, we spend most of our stuff on impractical things. So, anyway, at least this guy was doing singing for a living, but he was doing this kind of moderated version, like teaching, singing, singing stuff that other people wrote, you know, collaborating with people. He was almost doing it, but not quite. And we quickly identified that this was the source of his kind of existential suffering. You know, to be so close, to be doing, like being in the field that you love and yet still not feel satisfied, it's almost more brutal than not being in the field at all. You know, it's kind of like losing your virginity and then never getting laid again. It's almost worse than never having sex in the first place because you know what you're missing out on. And, you know, in the beginning of this guy's singing career, he had been expressing himself properly, you know, when he was young and carefree and so on. He was singing the way he should be and then he lost that along the way due to fear which is true of so many artists and so many sort of creative types. So we set a challenge up where he did a string of concerts and actually sung some of his own music there. And it took him like, I think it was like 10 concerts, it took him like three just to build up the balls to actually throw one of his songs in there. And it took him like another three just to get over the absolute terror and queasiness of doing it until the final string of performances he was just in bliss he finally got to express himself he had a crowd of people singing along to songs that he made up that they had never heard before until that night you know it's the ultimate experience for an artist to actually have an engagement with people you connect with them through your art where you take them out of the woes and the miseries and the daily grind of life and give them something that just frees them. And you made it. It is all yours. There's nothing better than that for an artist. And he had that experience finally. The key lesson from his breakthrough was he was suffering from what I call the Everest effect. And this is a trick that fear plays on you. I call it the Everest effect because what it does is your fear turns something that you want to do into Mount Everest. This impossible climb. And it convinces you, through actually often seeming to be encouraging and supportive, that the thing you want to do is massive and overwhelming and intimidating and ultimately unachievable, unrealistic. See, when he told me about his vision for sharing his music, it was about touring the world and you know, playing to massive sold-out shows and collaborating with the top artists in the world, and we came to realize that vision itself was the barrier. That vision was too big; it was terrifying. That vision, just the thought of like what you'd have to go through to make that come true, was just overwhelming. It's like saying, "Hey, you want to go climbing? You have to start with that massive mountain, biggest mountain in the world. People die climbing it. You don't even know where to begin." But the truth was, it's as small as writing one song and performing it once at one concert. See, climbing Mount Everest is the trick. You you don't actually need to get to the top. You just start climbing a few steps at a time. Maybe even one step at a time. And you can rest and quit after any step if you feel like it. That's the truth about it. And your fear knows this, your fear knows that if you realize that anything you want to do is just a series of tiny steps, all of which you can handle doing, then you'll actually do it, which will create the success that we're so scared of. We're actually scared of getting to the top of the mountain, scared of what that will imply for our lives. So fear creates the mountain to scare us off taking a single step, and it's a very effective strategy. A lot of people listening to this will have big dreams for the future, and they haven't even inched in that direction yet. Haven't taken a single step because the dream actually intimidates the fuck out of them. It's too big to even think of how to accomplish. But if you think of just, well, what's a tiny step in that direction that I could handle, that I could do this week? And you'll realize that is manageable. As soon as you take the pressure off for that to lead anywhere, for it to become something, for it to be anything other than the experience by itself, you'll realize it's really quite easy to do. And that's what he realized, and I'm really excited about his future, because the dream might actually come true, though it will probably look different to how he currently envisions it. It'll be something else that he enjoys even more that's made up of tiny steps that he takes over time. There's a couple other guys I want to mention, um, call them M and P, who very, very similar and had almost the exact same experience with me as, as clients at quite different times. First off, their backgrounds very similar. They come from an Indian-Asian cultural heritage, and the kind of classic, almost stereotypical heritage. Lots of pressure. Lots of focus on high performance and competition with your peers. Lots of focus on people-pleasing your family, and huge emphasis on finding someone to get married to and having children, and lots and lots and lots of pressure around that. These guys are just a classic story for people all over the world, but particularly people from certain cultures where this is emphasized. You know, I'm in the Czech Republic right now. The culture of, like, find someone, get married and have kids is so emphasized. You actually get, like, shamed and not ostracized, but certainly socially punished the older you get without, you know, achieving these goals. It was just really, really strong. It's the kind of thing you go home for a family dinner and they're like, why haven't you got a girlfriend yet? When are you going to give me some grandkids, you know? How come you're not getting paid more at your job? It's like that, you know, it's done lovingly, but also it's really kind of a form of abuse. And these guys were both in the category of severely deficient with women socially. There's a number of guys I work with um who on the surface, or at least in their own eyes, they see themselves as like very socially awkward and very sort of like backwards and unable to connect with others. They see themselves as weird. And the longer this goes for, the worse the feeling and the beliefs get. But whenever I talk to them, I'm just like, you're a normal dude. There's nothing that bizarre about you. And I would tell them if there was. You know, because I work with another type of client, which is those who are like, say, people on the autistic spectrum, uh, or people who have, I don't know, something traumatic happens to them in their childhood, and so on, different experiences that make them actually quite sort of unaware of how to socialize properly quite emotionally sort of unintelligent you might say and they've got some serious practical barriers to overcome in order to socialize kind of people that not even sure how long you should shake someone's hand or like when eye contact's appropriate well these guys they didn't have that problem if they're with someone that they're not attracted to okay or they're with someone that they don't look up to or they're not intimidated by if they're with a peer or talking to me I was like, you're a normal sociable guy. I would happily be friends with you, have a beer with you. And in fact, the two guys I'm talking about, I have socialized with um, personally later on. They're kind of clients who became friends. And, but they had a view of themselves as being just really deficient with women and just really socially sort of retarded, for lack of a better word. And they're the couple of my favorite stories, because they went from can't talk to girls at all, married to girls that they fully love within about three years two or three years and it's amazing just how huge the transformation is and again all we did was work on being powerfully boldly honest going for what you want you know overcoming fears of rejection and just taking risks and that's what these guys did and they didn't realise how attractive and valuable they were to woman because they weren't taking any risks and taking any chances and having any experiences. As soon as they unleashed themselves it was almost like a feeding frenzy. Cause these were awesome guys. In fact their Nice guy syndrome gives them a the quality that once you add boldness and assertiveness to it makes them kind of you know, real prize men, you know, real prize catch. Because there are of bold guys out there who are generally just kind of self-centered or even narcissistic and not very caring or not very empathetic. But you take a nice guy and you make him bold, then you get like all the empathy and sympathy and caring and loving stuff with balls. And that's rare. Most guys are one or the other. It's very rare to get someone who's both. When girls find someone like that, holy shit, like a real man but he's got feelings too, And he can understand me, holy shit, i have fucking hit the jackpot, right? And that's what these guys became. They just didn't realize they had that strength. They didn't realize they were that high in quality. And it was just just so nice to watch and be a part of, to see a guy come to me, like, almost hopeless, like I'm going to die a virgin, and at least one of them, maybe both of them were virgins when they first met me. Um... And to be really obsessed with that and really insecure about it. And then in a few years we're talking about like dealing with uh, in-laws, you know, or dealing with relationship problems. I'm like, dude, you've got such better problems now, (laughs) you know. Now you worry about, should I be honest with my wife about this stuff? I'm like, dude, just stop for a second. Three years ago you couldn't even talk to a girl. Now you're talking about the fine tuning of intimacy with your loving wife. Life's doing pretty good. So these guys, there are a few lessons here. One of the things that they had in common is that their cultural upbringing gave them the impression that being bold and assertive romantically and sexually was wrong, that it was sleazy and bad and harmful to women. And because they believed that, they became very sexually passive, almost asexual in the presence of women, which means if they were interested in a woman, she would have no idea. And they would be very timid and sort of people pleasing in her presence, which is really off putting. You know, there's no girl who gets wet over a guy people pleasing. It's just as simple as that. Because she knows it's fake. She knows it's crap. She knows it's spineless. There's nothing attractive about being spineless, at least not to healthy people. And so these guys had to do something quite drastic, they had to breach. Their cultural conditioning, they had to break the rules that they'd been raised with, and everyone they knew had been raised with, in fact, their entire country had been raised with. Countries that came from different places. Um And that's hard. That's hard when your family's, you know, strongly indoctrinated into these beliefs and constantly hammering them home, and every friend you talk to is, you know, mouthing and parroting the same dogma that you're all raised with, it's very hard to believe, hey, maybe they're all wrong. And maybe I'm going to have to do something that's quite high risk to test that. And that's why I like helping these guys, because I can help reduce the risk of it. I can show them how to be bold and honest without crossing the line. And uh, these guys did that, and it's like they've just been waiting their whole lot. It's, how do I explain it? I'm glad they don't regret anything, because they could. You know, they missed out on a lot of their life because they just wouldn't open up and be honest. And if they had, you know, they wouldn't have taken so long to get what they really wanted. At the same time, maybe that journey helped them appreciate it. You know, I can't think of guys who are going to be more grateful for their partners and their families than guys who have spent so long being lonely, you know. So it's awesome that... You know, I, I look forward to these guys being parents. One of them's already had a kid. I think another one's got one on the way. You know, they're going to make great fathers because they've had this rich range of experience and they have this great variability of traits of both sort of feminine and compassionate through to hard and masculine. You know, that's it's like the perfect parent right there. So I'm particularly proud of those ones because you know they seem like write-offs when they came to me, but by the end of it, they're kind of God, it's like the last person at the bachelor auction, you know, it's like bidding wars. A few more to share with you. One of them is one of my longest serving clients. I think the person who's been with me the longest, you know, we did some intense work up front. Now he checks in with me once a month just to stay on track. And he is a classic nice guy in the exact same way as I was or am or whatever, however you phrase it. You know, I've got it under control, but we're, we're the same type of nice guy. There's different types, and if you ever want to know what type you are, I've got a whole course on that. You can just get in touch with me, Dan at dan.brojo.org. But uh, yeah, this guy's exactly like me. But out of all the people I've ever worked with, he's got to be one of the most enthusiastically open-minded. He really had no ego about his current self. Like He was willing to let go of whatever in order to improve his situation most of the clients I work with that's not a downside but most of them have resistance and skepticism you know we have to work through blocks they have to actual change and this guy is one of those rare ones that has zero blocks he's like I'll do fucking anything and I really resonated with that because that's that's what I'm like at least that's what I was like at the beginning you know when I first realized I had nice guy syndrome I'm like I'll fucking try anything I'll run around naked if it might even help, you know. And that's that's actually what got me into the whole pick-up artist thing, which didn't serve me particularly well, but it's because I'll, I'll try anything. And I really did. I tried everything and finally found what worked. And he did the same thing. Uh, but thankfully with me, I was able to help guide him towards what might actually help. And again, you know, he came to... He's one of those guys that came to me as not just a virgin, but just... <laughs> Okay, how else can you say it? Just hopeless with women. Just hopeless. Just clueless. You know. And I, I really, I feel for guys like that because I remember being there. You know, I remember just being at parties or bars and looking at women, just going, "How do I even start?" You know, nothing I do even comes close to like moving the needle. And watching all these people effortlessly do something magical that I couldn't see or understand, even when it was done right in front of me, connecting with each other. I'm just watching this, going like. Is this a trick? Is everyone in on it? Is this like one of those prank shows? Is this the Truman Show? Like, what the fuck? How do I not get this thing? When I'm clearly like a functioning human with no major discrepancies. And, you know, he had that same issue. Totally lovable guy. Intelligent. He has passions and hobbies. You know, he has a career plan he's on track with and so on. He's a valuable guy but just couldn't click with women whatsoever. and But he was willing to, see, when I work with guys like this, I always have to emphasize, look, it's the pursuit of women itself that's fucking you up. You need to stop that and focus on yourself. Instead, focus on living by your own values. You're still going to socialize and interact with women, in fact, with all people, but you're going to stop trying to get them. That's getting in the way. And he embraced that, and I usually get a lot of resistance to that. And it takes guys a while to click, oh yeah, that's right, chasing them makes them run away. So he, he really embraced that, and things started moving for him. He started becoming more confrontational at work. He finally got his finances in order. He started finding a way to be proud of himself, and you could start to see it come through. I actually got to meet him face-to-face. A lot of my clients are international, I don't get to meet them. But I was bounced over to the UK, and I got to finally hang out with them, and you know, and it was great to like meet him in person and just see that self-worth come shining through. He just really valued himself. And it was shortly after he crossed that line that he met the girl that he's now engaged to. And she's just such a perfect fit for him. They're like that kind of yin-yang kind of relationship like I have with my wife, um, where their strengths meet the other person's weaknesses and so on. He's just found that person. And all he does is just be honest with her, you know, and he's just, he had dealt with all his insecurities and his main bullshit by the time he met her, so he's just perfectly primed to be a good partner to have, because he had left his baggage at the door kind of thing. I mean, we all bring our issues into a relationship, but he had dealt with the main, like, relationship ruining stuff, so by the time he got to her, it was just ready to go, and he just went for it, and was just super honest, and even though he was like really excited about the way it worked out with her and it was finally happening for him, he still prioritizes integrity. And that's the main lesson from him. Instead of trying to get something, you prioritize your integrity. You try to live with integrity and you're willing to sacrifice anything for that. Then you'll get it. And you can't do it like fake. You can't be like, oh, I'll pretend to sacrifice my integrity so I can get what I want. It's like, no, you've got to really sacrifice what you want to get integrity, like, you have to give up, let go of it, and he did that, and that's when the universe finally sort of said, okay, now you've earned it, here it is, and everything that's good about his life, from his career, to his relationship, to his self-worth, his passion hobbies, he's earned every single bit of it, like, I've been with him for years now, and he has done some fucking hard, uncomfortable actions on my watch, you know, and he's impressed me. He's one of those guys, like, I'll send him homework and he would come back and he's done three times that amount and he's done something that, like, even I think was scary, you know. He's one of those guys and that's why he's made such significant progress. And he's on just on a track now. He only sees me because he wants to. He has no need of me anymore. Uh, he is his own coach now. I'm just helping him fine-tune stuff that he probably doesn't even need to fine-tune half the time, but just for his own amusement. But that's what I love. Is when I'm working with someone and they become their own coach, their, their voice or their values actually starts to resonate in their head and guide their decision making. And that's he just listens to their voice and he's crushing it. Okay, next one. Guy we'll call S. One of my more uh, recent clients. Now, the reason I bring him up because he represents a lot of my clients, specifically my male clients, who come to me. Because they have erectile dysfunction. And more specifically, they have an anxiety in the bedroom that hurts their performance. It's not a physiological problem. You know, when they're alone or whatever, it all works just fine. But particularly when they go to bed with a girl that they like, that they have like a vested interest and in they're going well with her, they have this anxiety thing, which I fully get because I suffered under that for years. It just got worse and worse the more it happened. Um, And it's one of my sort of proudest pieces of work because I can actually cure this for guys now. No medication, nothing. No need for Viagra or anything like that. Uh, It takes a few months depending on how sort of anxious the guys become or how sort of long-standing and chronic the problem is. But yeah, I can get a guy where he never really has to worry about it happening again. and. This guy, S yes, it took us about four months, I think. Four months of working together, maybe a bit longer, um, before it was basically completely cured. And the key lesson from how he did that is around pressure. You understand, you, you, the penis does not respond well to pressure for most guys. Um, ironically, an erect penis is a relaxed penis. The way it works, give you a bit of a biology lesson. that I just got off Wikipedia. Um, you know, essentially, getting an erection is the the muscles, the sort of sphincter type muscles at the base of the penis relax to allow the blood flow. So your penis is actually tense when it's flaccid. It's kind of this backwards thing. The the smaller it gets, the more tense you are, and vice versa. And so, a lot of guys think they've got to try and like they turn ED into the serious problem that needs to be solved, but all they're doing is putting more pressure on, which means they're not solving the problem whatsoever. And the key is to learn how to take the pressure off. Now, it takes quite a bit of work with someone because you've got to readjust a lot of beliefs, but the gist of it is you have to make it okay for your penis to not work in the bedroom. It's a mixture of practical skills, like learning how to give pleasure without needing a penis. But mostly it's about a mindset of focusing on what you can control, and the penis not being one of those things. See, a lot of guys that get ED and really struggle with it, they get really frustrated because they feel like they can control all the other areas in their life. Any other goal they want to succeed in, they can succeed in it. But they hit this wall with their own genitals because the penis doesn't give a fuck what you want it's got its own agenda and you can't control it and i would be certain that this happens for other sexual performance it could be even you know for females who can't get wet due to anxiety issues be the same thing absolutely generally that area responds poorly to stress you know stress is an emotion we have where it's fight or flight response, we're in danger, at least that's what the body thinks, so the last thing it needs to be doing in that moment is having sex. So it turns off all the functioning down there to conserve resources for the fight, or the flight. But of course we're having fight or flight responses to things that aren't dangerous, but the body doesn't know that. So anyway, what this guy really did was he learned how to make it okay to not perform, and this was actually a more global thing in his life. It wasn't just the bedroom, but other areas in life where he put a lot of pressure on himself to control things that he couldn't control. And piece by piece, belief by belief, we started peeling away at that until he was finally able to be okay with not controlling something. He finally got to the point where it's like, hey, maybe it will never work and that's okay. And about at that point in time, it started working. And, you know, a month goes by and it's oh, I think it's working. And then a couple of months, you're like, holy shit, this really is working. Um, And that's, you know, that's a big lesson for all of us. If something's not working, the more pressure you apply probably makes it worse rather than better. So your focus needs to be on removing pressure, not on succeeding at the thing. Last one. One of my first ever clients. She came to me, she's a classic depressed people pleaser, which is on the surface, it's all smiles and positivity and trying to help people. And underneath that is the black dog, just this crushing depression. There's kind of, I mean, there's probably multiple types, but two main types of depressives. There's the one who stays in bed under the covers crying all day. And then there's the one who's super busy out and about socializing, self-sacrificing, bending over backwards, going hard out, big smile on her face. And really, they both feel exactly the same. They just respond to it differently. Who knows, maybe it's an introvert, extrovert thing, but if she hadn't told me, I wouldn't have seen it. I mean, these days I can spot that kind of thing, but this was very early in the coaching game, and frankly, if someone really wants to fake something, they can they can do it. They can get past even my radar sometimes. And she did, I was like, wow, this girl's full of beans, really positive, but luckily she was also very honest with me. It took a few sessions because we initially started by just like looking at a career and some superficial bullshit there that I was convinced was the main deal. And then the story about depression came out. And the more we dug into it, the more I found this person who's just dedicated their lives to making other people happy. And it's almost like she was giving her own happiness away to do so. She had left none for herself. She didn't enjoy being herself. She was just, It was either anxious or depressed. Those were her two states. But she felt this huge pressure to keep up the act and keep people happy. And this is the kind of person who unexpectedly commits suicide, you know. And everyone goes, oh, she seems so fine. It's like, no, she's been suffering her whole life. She just hid it from you and you didn't think to ask. But she was depressed. She was lonely. She just couldn't connect well and, you know, find a relationship. And her job sucked, you know. She, I mean, she got to please a lot of people doing it, but there was no real intrinsic reward for her. Took us about six months, you know, I was still like pretty amateurish and not sure what I was doing, but thankfully she was open and very brave. Within six months, she met a guy that she connected with deeply. She quit her job to start her own creative business on the, you know, started on the side and then finally quit and went all in. It was a big brave move for her. And she finally dealt with her depression properly, did what needed to be done with that, both medically and therapeutically. And, you know, to this day, I think she just popped out her first kid with this guy, you know, and they're still together and she's living this more genuine, real life now. Now, there are a lot of lessons here, but I think she's a good one to finish with because her lesson is the main lesson that I'm trying to get across to people with my work. People pleasing is a fucking disease. Nobody wins. I don't care if you're people pleasing to your own kids, they are still losing. And you're losing, and everybody's losing. You know, I've come to believe, I've been focusing on people pleasing, nice guy syndrome for you know, close to a decade now. And I've actually come to believe that as the direct cause of severe. F- Physical problems, strokes, heart attacks, migraines, mental breakdowns, stress burnout. There are a lot of people who have these where I can see a chain of people pleasing leading back from the event, usually all the way back to childhood. This build up of stress and pressure. It's so hard to maintain people pleasing because you have to live a lie. You have to pretend That you want some things, and you don't want others, and you have to pretend that you feel good when you don't, and you have to pretend that you genuinely want to help as much as you appear to, and you're just pretending all the time, constantly putting on this fucking face. Maybe you put on the cool face, or the funny face, or the positive face, or the (laughs) disinterested, apathetic face, or the whatever. And just had to hold this mask. It's like a physical burden holding this mask up. Plus the physical burden of just being so fucking helpful and cheerful all the time. Which is a real drain. I think it's the cause of suicides. It's certainly the cause of divorce. A lot of the time. It's the cause of loneliness. It's the cause of existential crisis. People pleasing. It's the fucking pits. It's like... I don't know, it might be one of the worst kind of disorders you can have. At least with schizophrenia and stuff, there's medication, and it's kind of obvious. A people-pleaser can go undetected their entire lives. And so they're left to drown in this thing, because everyone likes them so much without realizing, hey, maybe we should worry about the people who are liked by everyone, because that's not real. But this girl, like, she was one of my earliest people I worked with, and I originally started as a career type coach I I call myself a career and success coach just because I hate the term life coach and still do but she was one of the ones that woke me up to the idea like I need to be focusing on people pleasing that's the real problem here You know, somebody can be a janitor happily for their entire lives as long as they're not a people pleaser whereas a CEO of a major company who's a people pleaser will go home miserable more times than not so I started focusing on people pleasing after her, and that forced me to really dig into my own. I mean, I'd already been doing a lot of work in that area, but each client taught me more about myself and the different angles on this, and also introduced me to the types of nice guys and people pleasers that I wasn't so familiar with. You know, the types that uh, have the same basic insecurities as me, but it comes out differently. So that'll about do it for today. Just a random collection of stories for you and some lessons there. Basically what I was trying to do is take months of coaching down to a single soundbite. A takeaway that you can use. Hopefully you guys got some lessons from that. But these were real life stories. Real life transformations. Real life successes. And the truth about what they had to go through. And the kind of things that they had to break and rebuild. In order to create that success, you know there, there is no quick fix. there is no instant solution that is comfortable and easy to do. It's long hard work, it doesn't take as long as you think it's going to take. it's not as hard as you think it's going to be, but it's certainly uncomfortable. it's much more uncomfortable than just staying the same, except it kind of isn't because staying the same sucks, but it just it's more of a long slow torture. Whereas, you know, going through that kind of coaching process and getting someone to help you change quickly is more like short, sharp spike in pain, followed by a better life. Hopefully you guys got something from that. I'll see you guys all next time. Cheers.